taken a break for five or six weeks um, from this book of the Bible, but we're going to be returning to it uh, today. But I wanted to encourage you uh, as one of your pastors, and thank you more is the right verb, I guess, to use for your ongoing generosity to the mission of our church, uh, the gifts that you uh, give week in, week out, month in, month for your generosity and the ways that you continue to give from what God has given to you uh, so that we might have our pooled resources to minister to our community and around the world. Uh, I was particularly encouraged through December through something off budget through our giving trees uh, that you all participated in that were at the back of the auditorium. Uh, a few of my kids and I, actually all my kids and I, not a few, uh, got to deliver some of the things that you brought in uh, to some of these places this week. One place we got to go and there's more to come, but we got to take all the items and financial gifts that you gave to Fellowship Missions. Uh, we got to take that over there. I have a picture of the back of my van, I think, uh, that uh, we took our minivan, took the back seats out and just jammed it front to uh, back. I'm not, maybe I don't have a picture. There we go. Back of my van here. Uh, there is tons of stuff. You can't fully, it doesn't fully do it justice, but from water bottles to uh, food, big bins of coffee grounds and all sorts of things like that. And then monetary donations that we accumulated and, and gave uh, to them as well. And Eric Lane, uh, the director there, was immensely grateful and wanted to extend to you uh, their thanks uh, for what we donated to them to help further their work to care for men and women and boys and girls who are without homes in our community. So thank you for the, all the ways that you're generous, even in ways I don't know and don't need to know. Uh, but thank you for the ways that you continue to use what God's given you uh, to be a blessing to others. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 7 this morning, and I don't know about you, but I don't uh, think a lot about priests. Uh, as Protestants, especially, I think in our day and age, we don't think about priests a lot. Uh, it's not a category we think of. Uh, but this text is going to force us to this morning. Uh, and priests have been around as long as there have been human beings. There's something intuitive in us as human beings, no matter what culture you go to and you look back far into history, in almost every civilization, there's always been some sort of priesthood, some sort of people that were identified because human beings, we know intuitively we have a creator, whether the people understand it as one God or many, we know one, right? But there's this intuitive sense that we need someone to like mediate between us and God, to bring us to God or God to us, help us know how to worship him rightly, to how to live for him. There's always been priests, these mediators, these teachers, these guides, and whatever religions and cultures there have been. But as time has gone on, not all these priests look and operate the same. There's a uniqueness in different cultures of what these priests would do, how human beings kind of spun out these ideas of what things they needed to teach, how they needed to operate. So there became not just a universal nature of priests, but unique natures of different kinds of priests, even sometimes within the same religion. And what developed over time was that there would be these orders of priests. There, there wasn't just this universal category, but there would be these types of priests who had these different orders, who would have different things they emphasized or different practices that they would do as priests. They'd have their own unique values, mottos, things like that. Just one example, uh, I'm not endorsing this obviously, but in the Catholic Church today, there's different orders of priests, right? There's like Franciscans, there's Jesuits, Benedictines, Dominicans, all these sorts of things. There's different kinds of priests who have their own different flavors, their own different feels. And so this text this morning and the ones that actually follow the next couple weeks are going to press us to think about priests and even orders of priests because it's important to think if there's all these different kinds of priests out there, which order of priests do we turn to? 
Like, who has it right? Who actually can get us to God? Who actually teaches us the right way? There's much at stake. when we, It's not just interchangeable, right? We could go to this priest or these priests or those priests. There, we need to think carefully, which order of priests or priests am I turning to? And so this text is going to uh, zero us in on that question, and it's going to be an interesting passage to walk through. Uh, if you are in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to see him address which order of priests should be followed. And I want to remind you, we've been a few weeks out of this book, so just to catch us back up to speed, if you weren't here with us a few months ago, or maybe it's your first Sunday, uh, we typically go through books of the Bible, just start to finish, and we got to the end of Hebrews chapter 6, um, back near the end of November, and we're picking up back the start of chapter 7 this morning. But this was a letter written after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, some people speculate, but I don't think we're intended to know. But it was written, we can piece together, it was written to early Christians who were Jewish in heritage. That's the name Hebrews. They were people who grew up ethnically Jewish, but who had come to faith in Jesus. They believed that he is the Messiah. They had put their trust in him, but opposition had started to rise against them as Christians, where they were uh, being persecuted, having things taken to them, some people from them, some people being in prison, things like that. And they were tempted to s- scoot back towards Old Testament practices, to go back to the law, go back to the priesthood that God had given in the Old Testament and to abandon their following of Jesus. And that's who the people are that he's writing to. And that's why he's going to dive into subjects like he does in this text today that may seem foreign to us, but it was definitely not foreign to them. This is a huge question for them of which priest, which priesthood do they turn to? And in this text today, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, he is going, the author, whoever he was, is going to talk about this mysterious man named Melchizedek, uh, who is a fascinating figure. We're going to thoroughly learn about him today, Uh, but we're actually going to come at this text a little bit different. I'm going to show you one thing from the book of Hebrews, and then we're actually going to rewind in time back to Genesis and read a couple passages along the way to come back ultimately to this Hebrews chapter 7, because I don't think it'll make a whole... Hebrews 7 won't make a ton of sense to you if we don't do that. And so I do want to show you one thing from the book of Hebrews before we we rewind all the way back to Genesis. If you're in Hebrews, if you look back in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, uh, if you look back at verses 9 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 5, uh, the author had kind of come up toward this subject of Melchizedek, like he, he approached it, uh, and this is what he had said back in Hebrews 5 verses 9 through 11. Talking about Jesus, he said, and being made perfect, he, that's Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's the mention of Melchizedek. And then hear this, verse 11. He says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. And so he had just come up to this subject saying, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. And he's saying, I've got a bunch to tell you about this. Like, there's a lot that I can explain to you and want to explain to you. But then he says, but it's hard to explain. Uh, And he says they've become dull of hearing. And so what he's done between that text and what we're going to read in Hebrews 7, there's been a chapter and a half, or a, a chapter now, and then a few verses extra, where he has tried, he hit pause for a second 
And then he's, it's like he's trying to motivate them in chapter six, like, I'm about to teach you this stuff about Melchizedek, but you need to pay attention. Like, it's complicated. You need to follow along with it. Don't just zone out. Don't tune out. It is important stuff. And so he spent all of the end of chapter five, all of chapter six, trying to motivate them. Like, don't be dull of hearing. Pay attention to this. This is important stuff. It's the stuff about Jesus and Melchizedek. And so we're now in Hebrews 7, we're going to see what is this that he wanted to explain? What is this stuff that's hard to explain that he had much to say about? Which that is a humbling thing to see in the biblical text itself, where the author says, I've got a lot to say, and it's hard to explain, and then I need to try to explain what he was explaining. That is a humbling task. But when we come back to Hebrews 7, uh, here in a, a few minutes, we're going to see him start to unfold this teaching about Melchizedek and how Jesus and him relate. And I think it, you'll see that there's huge significance in it. And so I want us to rewind, though, all the way back toward the beginning of the Bible to the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 14, because this man Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews is going to make such an issue of, uh, he only appears in two texts in the whole Old Testament. Uh, he appears in one paragraph in Genesis 14, and then he appears in one verse in Psalm 110. Uh, but I, I want to show you these because when we get finally back to Hebrews 7, he's going to explain these texts. You'll see what I mean. He's just going to basically do a mini sermon on this text that I'm about to read to you. Okay, so Genesis 14 is the first place, really the only place we see this man Melchizedek actually doing something, uh, him actually operating as a human being, as a priest. So if we go all the way back to Genesis 14, this is around, we don't know the exact date, around 2150 BC. So as far before Jesus as we are after Jesus. This is ancient, ancient. This is, we're going to see the interaction between Abraham, or he was called Abram at that time still, and this man Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's just going to pop up onto the scene for one paragraph, and then he's going to leave. But there's huge significance in what happens between these two men, uh, what takes place between them, that the author of Hebrews is going to say, pay attention to this. Like, don't blink and miss this. Like, you could zone out for 30 seconds in the reading of the Old Testament, and you would miss this hugely significant story. So the setting of this, Genesis 14, and I'm going to... Uh, start uh, at verse 17 uh, there in Genesis 14. The setting of this, there's this man Abram, or Abraham, he comes to be known as later. He is the one God has already at this point made a huge promise to, right? That he says, I'm going to make you who don't even have a son yet. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless the nations through you. Like those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. God has made this huge promise to him. And he's going to become eventually the head of the nation of Israel, their patriarch, their founding father of the Jewish people, right? And so what happened immediately before this story, he had this nephew named Lot, and Lot had gotten captured kind of like a POW in a mini war back in this day and had been taken away. And Abraham actually, he was wealthy, rich, had trained men who could go fight. And he took 300 so men, went and fought against these kings who had taken Lot captive and then brought him back. Like they won and he brought back Lot. He brought back all sorts of possessions and people back to their hometown. And so he's just had this great victory. And then this is what happens. And you see Melchizedek come and Abraham interact with him. But pay careful attention to what takes place. So verse 17, it says, After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. 
That is the king's valley. And then here comes this man, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then he, uh, he exits stage right, <laughs> never to be seen again. That is the Old Testament witness to the life and ministry of this man, Melchizedek. But there's a few things I want to point out briefly just so you understand what happened there in that story. So there's this man named Melchizedek, right? And a couple of things I would note. One, note he was a king and priest, Right? It says that he was king of Salem, which may have been just the early iteration of Jerusalem. Right? We don't know that for sure. But he was the king of some city named Salem, like a real king, maybe a glorified mayor back then, but a ruler of this place called Salem. But he was also called, Moses records for us in verse 18, that he was priest of God most high. So there was priests in all sorts of civilizations, but he wasn't just priest of some random god. He was a legitimate priest of the creator God, the, the God who created heaven and earth, the God who would become known as Yahweh, the God that we know. He was the priest of that God, of the true God. So he was king and priest. And when Abraham, the significant, powerful man in his day and age, but also historically, who's going to give rise to the whole nation of Israel, when he meets this man Melchizedek, when they come and meet, and we don't know that they ever had interaction beforehand or after, when they meet, two things happen, right, in that narrative. One is that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, right, not vice versa. Like the he and the him there in verse 19, the he who blessed was Melchizedek, and the one that was being blessed was Abraham. And so tuck that away for when we get back to Hebrews. But Melchizedek is the one who's blessing Abraham, this hugely vital patriarch of the nation of Israel. But the second thing that happens in the opposite direction is that Abraham gives a tenth of everything that he just won from those battles, all the spoils, all the wealth, who knows what he had accumulated. He takes a tenth of that and instinctively gives it to Melchizedek like a tithe. Like he, he gives that just like eventually people would do toward the priests of Israel, Abraham gives to Melchizedek. So those are a couple of things you do see in the text. I would note also a couple of things you do not see in the text because the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on this too. In a, if you read through the book of Genesis, pretty much every significant person that pops up in the book of Genesis, you know how long their life was, you know who their parents were, you know where they came from, you know all these things. Like Moses went to great lengths to record those things about these people. But Melchizedek, you know nothing of that, right? You don't know who his mom and dad are. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know how long he's been alive. You don't know when he dies. You don't know any of that stuff. It's just silent. And, and a book that says everything about everybody, <laughs> their parentage and their lifespan and all those things, we know none of that about Melchizedek. Right? So just note those things. It's a fascinating text. Even people before the days of Jesus thought, what do we do with this guy? This seems bizarre and weird and out of place to us. This man that even Abraham gave a tithe to and was blessed by. But then he just exits stage right and we don't hear from him again. Right? All right. So tuck that away. We'll get back to that when we get back to Hebrews. 
as you roll down the, uh, there's a timeline kind of up at the top here. As you keep going down the timeline of history and the dealings of God with his people, eventually God does establish a priesthood, right? Uh, and this is a text I want to read to you. Uh, we call it like scene number two from the Old Testament. Something that takes place at Mount Sinai. This would have been around 1400 BC. So maybe like 750 years have passed or so since Melchizedek met Abraham. Abraham had a son who had a son who had sons and they become this huge nation, right? And that God has miraculously rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. You know that story of the Exodus and all these things. And God brings his nation of a people now to Mount Sinai and the region around it. And he gives them a law, right? He, tells, he starts telling them, this is how I want you to live as you finally go into the promised land. This is how you live. And part of that law that he gave them was about priests, like he was establishing a priesthood of who could serve as priests, what these people, what these men were supposed to do as priests. And there's a bunch of texts I could read from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I just picked one. This is from Numbers chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, just to give you a little taste of God establishing a priesthood, him saying who would be priests. So in Numbers chapter 8, God was speaking to Moses, and he said this. He said, you shall bring the Levites, that was one of the tribes of Israel, you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And when you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites and Aaron, he was the first priest, he was the brother of Moses, Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Okay, so that's just one little example for you to see. As God was establishing a, real, a priesthood for the nation of Israel at long last, he picked one tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites. He said, these folks are going to be the ones who serve as priests. They're going to be the ones who offer these sacrifices that I tell you how to make. They're going to be the ones who take care of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. They're going to be the ones who do these things as the priests of this nation. And so they set aside this tribe of Levi and then for generation upon generation, men from that tribe serve as priests. Uh, they are the ones who are, that we think of when we think of Old Testament priests were Levites. Uh, they were the ones who would have the vestments, who would offer the sacrifices, who would take care of the tabernacle and the temple. God gave extensive directions about how they were to operate as priests. You may not have thought about this before, but even the third book of the Bible is named Leviticus like Levites, a kiss. Like there's a whole book written about how these priests were to operate and how they were to, to purify people and offer sacrifices. They were the ones who became the priests, that one tribe of Israel, and they become hugely significant, right? They're the priesthood that God establishes for his nation, the Levites. So fast forward one more time, one more text before we finally get back to Hebrews chapter 7. And this text is fascinating. This is the one other time Melchizedek gets mentioned in the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay, If you turn to Psalm 110, if you want to turn there in your Bible, I'm going to reference one verse from Psalm 110. This is around, we don't know exactly when it was written, but around the year 1000 B.C., and this was written by King David, right? And if you know anything about him or kind of the setting of his life, 
Israel by this time is well established in the land of Canaan, right? They have been for generations. They, they uh, have him now as their king operating, uh, ruling over the people of Israel. Simultaneously, the priesthood is up and running and has been operating now for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Uh, they have these Levitical priests, these priests from the tribe of Levi, but Psalm 110 is fascinating because what you, you get when you read through Psalm 110 is a few, David gives a few different examples of speech that he hears God or Yahweh, the Lord, like capital L-O-R-D, saying to this person that David calls his Lord, who later we understand to be Jesus, like to be the Messiah, and listen to what he hears God say to Jesus. Here's the Father saying to the Son in verse number four. He says, he records this for us. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And then this is what he has heard the Father say to the Son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you would have been writing that and you're in his day and age, every priest you would have ever known in your life that you would have interacted with, that you would have approached was a Levite, right? And had been for hundreds and hundreds of years. The, the Levites were the priests. They were the ones God had given the priesthood to. But David, he writes down for us that he hears God telling the son, not that you are going to be a priest in the order of the Levites, you're not going to be a priest like them. He's saying to the son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious guy who's mentioned for a few sentences back in Genesis 14. You're going to be a priest like him. And then there is silence again for a thousand plus years. So Melchizedek pops up, has a short interaction with Abraham back 2,000 years before Christ. David references him once in Psalm 110. He's mentioned a paragraph and a verse, and that's it, nothing else. But then when we get to the book of Hebrews, and this author is writing to these early Jewish Christians who are tempted to walk away from Jesus, to, to abandon him, that author of Hebrews makes a beeline to these texts, to Genesis 14 and the Psalm 110, and says, guys, there is a priest. Jesus is a priest not like the Levitical priest. Like, he is not like the priest that you have known and loved and gone to again and again when you were younger. He is a priest like Melchizedek. He is a different, categorically different and better priest than any of the priests in Jerusalem, than any of the priests throughout the Promised Land. He is a different and better priest. So with all that background, I'm going to finally, at long last, I don't like waiting this long to get to our text of the day, but I want to read to you now from Hebrews chapter 7, today's text. Uh, and actually, I'm going to read, start at the end of chapter 6, uh, and then we're going to end in chapter 7, verse 10. So just to get us up to speed, the end of chapter 6, to these early Jewish Christians, this author says this. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become, here he comes up to the subject again, that he has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
That sounds familiar, right? That was just from Psalm 110 that we just read. He's quoting the words of David and saying, Jesus has become this high priest like Melchizedek. And then this is how he explained. You're going to see verses 1 through 2 uh, he's, and 3. He's going to point back to what we read in Genesis 14. So he says this. I'm just going to read all of verses 1 through 10 now of chapter 7. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. You remember that, right? We just read that a few minutes ago. And then he kind of exposits that text for us. The middle of verse 2, it says, He is first, this is talking about Melchizedek, He is first, by translation of his name, a king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father, or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Much to say, hard to explain, (laughs) okay? Uh, There's a whole lot I wish that I could explain. I want to try to help make sense of what the point is he's making with these early Christians, these early Jewish Christians, and why he points back to Melchizedek and what relevance that has for them and what relevance that has for us. But what, what I want you to see from this text is this, that the author would have been telling them in their day and that the Spirit would tell us now, is that a proper understanding of the Old Testament will point you to Christ as priest, not to the Levites. A proper understanding that's true today of the Old Testament will point you to Christ as your priest, as the great high priest, not to the Levites. And it's like the author of Hebrews here in chapter 7 is saying, and I'm going to prove that to you, (laughs) like to the the early readers, and I'm going to point you Meet you on the turf of the Old Testament. Meet you back in Genesis and show you that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, not like the Levites. Okay, so look at verse 4. Uh, to these early Christians, the author of Hebrews said, see how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek. He is impressed by Melchizedek. He wants them to be impressed by Melchizedek. He says, see how great this man was. And I love, if you know me, you know I love Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he said of this text in Hebrews chapter 7, he said of Melchizedek, we see but little of him, Yet we see nothing little in him. 
everything about him is on a scale majestic and sublime. That is so true. Like in those short little sentences back in Hebrews that uh, are back in Genesis that the author of Hebrews is referencing, it's a short amount of content, but it's big things being said about Melchizedek and shown about Melchizedek. He was impressive. He was great. And the author of Hebrews wants them to see that, see how great this man was. And he points out a few things that demonstrate Melchizedek's greatness, okay? A couple of things that show Melchizedek's greatness. One, I kind of already mentioned to it, is that Melchizedek was a king and a priest, right? He was king and priest, king of Salem and priest of God Most High. The Levitical priests, the ones that we're used to thinking about in the Old Testament, could not be both of those things, right? Levites were not allowed to become rulers of the nation of Israel. That was coming through the line of Judah, the line of David. It was an ancestral thing that would get passed down through David's line, this kingship that would be passed down. There could be no overlap of those things under the old covenant of king and priest. If you read back when King Saul tried to do priestly things, as king, God condemned him for that, right? Like they were not allowed to mix. We love that as Americans, right? Like separation of powers, like power will corrupt. Uh, They didn't let people have both of those roles. But back before the law, Melchizedek did have both of those roles. He was king and priest. That's impressive. There was no priest of the Levites who could claim that, right? But then the author makes points that are impressive about Melchizedek by what wasn't said in Genesis, right? Like if you look at verse three, he points out things that weren't articulated in Genesis, that we don't know who his father or mother or genealogy was, right? In this book where they had those again and again and again, it's not mentioned. And so as far as we know, Melchizedek always existed. I don't think he always had existed, right? I think he was a human being, a flesh and blood human. But as far as the literary story of him, we have no record of his beginning. He did not become a priest because of who his dad was, right? Because we don't even know who his dad was. He, so we don't know who his parents were. He became a priest because he was worthy to be a priest, right? Not because of who his daddy was, right? Melchizedek. But he also points out in the end of verse 3 that back in Genesis, we have no record of his beginning of days or the end of his life. We don't know how old he was when Abraham met him. We don't know when he died. As far as the literary story goes, he could endure forever. Like he could still be on the planet. We don't know when he died. Like we know of every, I don't think he's still on the planet. I think he actually did die. But as far as the story, when Moses is recording Genesis, I think it's on purpose he doesn't give a birth date or a death date of Melchizedek. As far as the story goes, he wants us to see this is a different kind of priest. Like Melchizedek is a fundamentally different, better kind of priest. But the author of Hebrews here in chapter 7, he doesn't just argue from silence. Arguments from silence can be really dangerous, right? You can fill in blanks however you want. But he points out to them what those interactions between those two men were like back in Genesis, right? He points out that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, right? Not the other way around. Melchizedek blessed him, and Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, not the other way around. And what he's trying to point out, look at verse 7. He just takes it as a given that they will agree that it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, right? He's saying that, as a matter of fact, with this kind of blessing, that Melchizedek gave to Abraham, it's a blessing that comes from a superior to an inferior. Uh, there's, some blessings are not like that, but some are. Like 
Kids don't speak blessings over their parents typically at night, right? Like a parent speaks it to a child. There's a fittingness to that, right? A a superior in age to an inferior in age. And so he's saying just the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham is showing Melchizedek was better than Abraham. Like this patriarch of your faith, Jewish people, who is impressive in his own right, Abraham. Melchizedek's more impressive. Like when those two met, guess who instinctively kneeled and was blessed by the other? It was Abraham kneeling before Melchizedek. It was Abraham opening his treasure to give to Melchizedek, not the other way around. And he is telling them, do not miss that. See how great this man was. He's mysterious, but he is great. Like we, he had a short uh, day in the sun, but there's a lot that we can see by him. And he even argues by the end of this text today, he even explicitly argues that the Levites, those descendants of Levi that become the priests, he's saying Melchizedek's better than them, right? Because Abraham's their great, 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 great granddad, and Melchizedek's better than him. Are these Levites going to claim they're better than Abraham? I don't think so, right? They descend from him. And so he's saying these Levitical priests you so respect, and rightfully so, even they're inferior to Melchizedek. Why would you go back to them? Like, they are inferior to this king, this priest, Melchizedek. So see how great this man was. And the other thing I want to point out from Hebrews 7 is look at verse 3. I love this phrase because in verse 4, he's trying to help them see how great Melchizedek was. But at the end of verse 3, I'll point out to you that he says, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, Right? He doesn't just want them to be impressed with Melchizedek. Like, if I can convince you of that, we're good. Like, Melchizedek was wonderful. Isn't he so impressive? He's trying to help them see how impressive Melchizedek is because he wants them to see Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. Like, Melchizedek, he comes in advance of Jesus, but he resembles Jesus. The reason God had him pop onto the scene and interact with Abraham was to give us a little foretaste of what Jesus was going to be like. Right? That, that Melchizedek resembles Christ, not the other way around. Because as impressive as Melchizedek was, and he was, I hope you're impressed by him, this mysterious man back in Genesis 14. As impressive and great as Melchizedek was, Jesus is infinitely better and more impressive than Melchizedek. Right? That's the point of this text. It's not to leave them at the end of verse 10 like, whoa, isn't Melchizedek amazing? I missed that in the Old Testament. But it's to say, God gave Melchizedek. He raised him up. He recorded his story how he did in Genesis 14. And David said what he did in Psalm 110 to show us that someday a priest who actually is all of those things would come. Not just we don't know when he was born and his arrival into the world is kind of mysterious like Jesus' is. But this is a man, Jesus, who far surpasses Melchizedek. I think Melchizedek was born and did die, and his body's returned to dust somewhere on the planet right now. Jesus, he has been dead and been raised never to die again. He really can endure as a priest forever, right? And it's not just an argument from silence. Like, he's been raised up to never die again, right? And so a few ways that Jesus far surpasses Melchizedek, and then I'll try to give a couple words of application, even though this sermon is heavy on explanation. I totally understand that, and unashamedly preach it that way. But a few ways that Melchizedek resembles Christ, a few ways that Christ is better, more impressive than Melchizedek, Well, let me say first, 
God sent Melchizedek because he knew someday he would send Christ, right? It's like he sent a copy of Jesus in advance. And so the things he did with Melchizedek are on purpose. So he knew what he would do. He's given a sneak peek. But Jesus has become the substance, the fulfillment of all those things that were were kind of true about Melchizedek. So first, Jesus is king and priest, right? Jesus has been made the ruler of all things, all places, all times, right? Before he went back up into heaven, after he was raised from the dead, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He wasn't just the king of Jerusalem or of Israel or of the Middle East or of his day and age. He has been made by God the king of all things, the ruler of heaven and earth. He is that ruler, but if that's all he was, if he was just a ruler, we may uh, just crumble before him, be in terror of him because we have sinned against him, right? Like if all he was is king, that is not good news for us, but he is king and priest. Melchizedek was king and priest. Jesus is king and priest. He is the one who rules over us, but he is also the one who intercedes for us, right? He is the one even more than just being a priest. We're going to see in the book of Hebrews, he's also the sacrifice. Like he is the one who intercedes for us before God. And the the Levites brought like bulls and goats and things like that. Those didn't actually bring forgiveness, but Jesus has actually, as priest, brought a sacrifice to God the Father that can actually gain us forgiveness, the offer of himself upon the cross. So Jesus is king and priest, right? And he's not priest because of who his dad was, right? Joseph wasn't a priest. Joseph wasn't even his biological father, right? Jesus hasn't been made priest. He was from the line of Judah, right? He wasn't even from the line of Levi. And so the fact that he has been made priest has nothing to do with his ancestry, It has everything to do with his worth, like his dignity, his goodness, his holiness is what has made him priest, right? And two other ways Jesus resembles in an even better way Melchizedek is that he can proclaim blessing over us and he should receive gifts from us, right? If Melchizedek received those gifts from Abraham and then blessed him in return, the same is true in greater measure of us in Christ. That he is willing, Jesus, the ruler of the nations, is willing to speak blessing and favor over you and over me. And he actually, his word actually does something, right? Like he, when he speaks blessing over his people, it actually accomplishes something. It actually brings the favor of God with it, right? So he, as the one who has died for us, been raised for us, he can pronounce blessing over us that actually brings us to God, that actually gains us the favor of the Lord. But then as the one who's died and been raised, the flip side is he deserves gifts from us, right? If when Abraham met Melchizedek there in the Valley of the Kings and he instinctively bowed his knee to Melchizedek and opened his treasure to Melchizedek, how much more when you think of yourself and Christ? the greater Melchizedek, the infinitely greater Melchizedek, when you think of your relationship with him, how much more willing should you be and I be and we be to bow ourselves before Christ and open up the treasury of what God has given us in life? Like he deserves our lives. He deserves our worship. He deserves our energy. He deserves our dedication to him. 
So see how great Melchizedek was, but see how greater Jesus is. Uh, the one who is king and priest and sacrifice, uh, he is the greater Melchizedek. He has become a priest far surpassing him. And so what the author of Hebrews was doing was telling these people who were tempted in their day to step backward to the Levitical priests, to go back to the Old Covenant, to go back to these rituals and laws and sacrifices and practices and festivals and all these things under the Old Testament law, and even to go back to the Levitical priests. He's saying, do not do that. Read your Old Testament carefully. Read that paragraph in Genesis 14. There is a priest who is different. It's not as if Levitical priests are the only kind of priests that God condones. There's a greater priest back there before the law, Melchizedek. And David knew that when the Messiah finally came, he wasn't going to be a Levite. He was going to be a priest like Melchizedek. And that's exactly what happened. When the Messiah finally did come, he wasn't a Levitical man. He wasn't from the line of Levi. But he was priest of God Most High. And he has become the king of the nation. So he was telling them, don't go back to those old systems. They're inferior. They're they're. They are to point you to Christ as your priest and king. And I would say the same to you today. I doubt any of you are tempted to run. I don't even know where the nearest Jewish synagogue would be. But I don't think any of you are probably tempted to, to make a beeline to go back and say, you know what, I've been reading my Old Testament. I, I think I need to, to become Jewish and go back to Jewish practices. I doubt that any of you are tempted to do that. But I want to encourage you in the same way that this author would to whatever you are tempted to run to as your source of hope between you and God, whatever person that you are tempted to think of, whether it's a pastor or a teacher or a parent or a mentor or somebody that you think, maybe they could represent me before God. There is no one that can represent you before God uh, like Christ can. There is no one who can successfully represent you before God, bring you to God other than this king and priest, Jesus and I want to rid you, I was thinking of this this morning and last night, if any of you have the audacity to think you can be like your own defense attorney before God, that you can be your own priest of sorts, I don't need anybody to intercede for me. Yes, you do. Like there's a reason human beings throughout time have known we need a priest. Like none of us, you, me included, can stand before God and be acquitted, can be forgiven on our own merits, our own worthiness. We need a priest. Like we need someone who can bridge between us and God, who can atone for our sin and bring God to us and us to him. And there is one person, one person alone who can do that. And it is not you. It is not your dad. It is not your pastor. It is not your mentor. It is not your president. It is not anyone other than Jesus Christ himself. Like he is the one that God has sent into this world to be our ruler and to be our priest. And if we are ever tempted to run after other people or another person or another thing for our hope before God, this text and countless others throughout the scriptures say, stop doing that. God has funneled, us, funneled our hope down to one person, not to one tribe, but to one person, Jesus Christ. And he is not, uh, I love that the author points out that he is after the order of Melchizedek. He is not in the order of Melchizedek right? Uh, he's not, if you want to make a very long adjective, he's not a Melchizedekian priest. He is an order in and of himself. Like the order that really matters of priesthood is of one person, and it's Jesus Christ, the, the, the God-man who came into this world, lived for us, 
suffered for us upon the cross, died bearing the judgment of God, was raised from the dead to be ruler of the nations. That person, Jesus Christ, is willing to speak blessing over you. He is willing to speak favor over you, not because you're good and not because you have big treasures to open up like Abraham did to him, but the way he receives us, the way he speaks blessing over us is simply this, if we will turn in repentance and faith toward him. That is what we offer is nothing. <laughs> like we offer emptiness. We offer sin to him. If that's how we approach him on bended knee, he speaks nothing but blessing and favor over us. And his word does way more than Melchizedek's. Amen? The word of Christ actually can save. The intercession of Christ can be effective. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But thank you for being attentive. I know that was a, a thick text. But let's pray together. Father, we uh, want to be people who read your word carefully, uh, who read it with attentiveness, who pay attention even to small details, who, who don't neglect any part of it. So we pray for your help as we uh, continue to live as your people, that you would motivate us to be students of your word, uh, to be uh, careful with it. Uh, Sunday by Sunday and day by day in our homes even, to, to open it, to read it, to meditate upon it, to internalize it. God, we are grateful that long ago you sent Melchizedek to meet Abraham in that valley to show all the people who would ever read the scriptures that there is a different and better kind of priest than the Levites, a priest who is worthy, a priest who is eternal, a, a priest who is also king, and a priest who is willing to speak and able to speak blessing over us. So you, may you forgive us when we run after other substitutes, other priests, other uh, interceders. May you forgive us. May you dissolve any hope we have in any other priest other than Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.